Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, fellow time travellers of my acquaintance and friendship. I hope you're well. Before we start the podcast, I just want to let you know a bit about my Patreon site. It's all about my passion for history and how it intersects and impacts on the lives we're all living today. When you sign up, you get exclusive access to my weekly videos. Uh, It's coming up to Christmas, uh, so we're going to do another competition. Had to do it, didn't we? The next competition will be a virtual treasure hunt, like the last one, and the prizes are more personalised copies of my newest book. When you sign up to my Patreon site, it helps support the making of this podcast, so it'd be great to have as many of you as possible along for the ride. To join, simply go to patreon.com and look for me by name, Neil Oliver and I will look forward to seeing you. Right, time to put on our diamonds and silks and step aboard one of the world's most iconic ships in the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. If you imagine her out there, in the dark, steaming through the night, unknowingly towards disaster, In this episode, we're sailing into one of the world's greatest, grandest and most terrible stories. It's captivated us for a century. The largest man-made object that had ever moved across the face of the planet. She was one of a set of near-identical triplets, in fact, built when technological advancement was moving fast and getting faster. On her maiden voyage, Around 2,200 passengers and crew were aboard, heading out into the wild Atlantic Ocean. Sailing towards tragedy, and the band played on. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil, in the last episode we saw unbelievable fortunes made as coal, the black gold of its day, was shipped out of Cardiff Port. Where are we this week? Well, where there's there's brass, Paul, and at the turn of the 19th century, when you'd made your fortune, one of the most fashionable things to spend it on was a trip to New York, aboard a glamorous ocean liner. And top of the list was the Titanic, 
whose maiden voyage has inspired thousands of articles, books and at least one Hollywood blockbuster. To this day, it still remains the deadliest peacetime sinking of a ship ever witnessed. A catastrophe that stood on the cusp of an age when the world was about to change forever. We're heading to Belfast, to the Titanic slipway. Well, it's one of our opportunities to be on the other side of the Irish Sea from the side that we're normally on. Rather than the Long Island that contains England, Scotland and Wales, we're over in the island of Ireland. Specifically, we're in the city of Belfast and we're looking at the Titanic slipway in the Harland and Wolfe yard. Harland and Wolfe, huge shipbuilders, Belfast, like Glasgow, a city with incredible shipbuilding heritage and it was on a set of slipways there that the three ships were launched, one of which was Titanic. She was one of a set of identical triplets or near identical triplets. This is a very significant part of the love letter for me because it's where in my memory or in my imagination we start to slide or segue into the First World War. Titanic was launched and lost in 1912. I don't think it's much of a spoiler that. I think everyone on the planet knows that Titanic was lost. And that year, 1912, two years before the outbreak of World War I, for me, the loss of Titanic, among much else, it stands for something. But we'll get to that. We will get to that. Okay, Titanic. Most people, many people, will have seen one or other movie, probably the Kate Winslet, Leonardo DiCaprio version, directed by James Cameron, very dramatic. Hugely popular film, I think it won an Oscar, didn't it? Yeah, it won a handful, including Best Director and Best Picture. So, in your mind's eye, you can see Titanic. You know what she looks like? Very distinctive shape, uh, with those four funnels. For all the time that she was afloat, which was about just seven weeks, nearly two months short of a year, Titanic, RMS Titanic, Royal Mail Ship Titanic, was the largest man-made object that had ever moved across the face of the earth. At that time, nothing so large and so grand had ever moved upon the face of the earth. She was just shy of 900 feet long, and 92 feet wide. She weighed in at 50,000 tonnes. To most people who don't have a background in shipping or engineering, it probably sounds big enough. Nearly 1,000 feet long, nearly 100 feet wide, 50,000 tonnes. It's a big old unit. To put that in an everyday context, how big is 900 foot? Well, I mean, a, 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 a thousand feet, you're looking at a, a, a skyscraper. A thousand feet, you know, that's what, a hundred storey building. It's massive. And let's remember, it's well over a hundred years ago and that they were capable at that time of moving something that size through the water with their engineering skill. I mean, it, it, does, it does say something for the engineering and the, and the ambition at that time. So placed on its end, Titanic would be taller than Canary Wharf in London, which for years 
was the tallest building in Britain. There you go, I couldn't actually have quoted at you the height of Canary Wharf. Yeah, it's under that, by quite a bit. It's 770 feet. Well, it's worth, for all that, it is worth looking at her in a modern context. When I was first looking at this story, in 2017, a gas pumping vessel called Prelude had just hit the water. Now, Prelude measures 1,600 feet long. So, nudging on for double the length. Prelude is longer than the Empire State Building is tall. Okay, she's 243 feet wide and she weighs 600,000 tonnes. So, ships have got considerably larger. When I was in the Harland and Wolfe yard, looking at the slipway for Titanic, and amongst other things, we looked at a dry dock that Harland and Wolfe had installed in more recent times, and it was used primarily for for uh, servicing and repairing oil rigs. And, you know, looked down into this thing, and giant trucks were moving about on the floor of it, and they looked like little toys. It was a massive hole in the ground. And I remember saying to the guy I was with, you know, how many Titanics would you get in here? And he shrugged his shoulders and said, oh, I don't know, six or eight. <laughs> so engineering has moved on considerably. But it is important to remember that in 1912, there was nothing else like her. And if you were confronted with her today, your average mortal would still regard Titanic as a big ship, which she surely was. At the time, there were two great shipping lines that were used for crossing the Atlantic, amongst other things. And they had the big liners, the big ships. One was the Cunard Line, and the other was the White Star Line. Titanic was made for and used by the White Star Line. So when White Star commissioned Harland and Wolfe to build Titanic, as I say, for all sorts of reasons, it made sense to make more than one. And in fact, Titanic was one of a set of nearly identical triplets. One of her sisters, which was called Olympic, was actually built alongside her. You know, they were built side by side. And the third, which was called Britannic, was built after Titanic and Olympic, and she launched just before the outbreak of the First World War. Cunard Line had the fastest ships at the time. They had the record-breaking liners Lusitania and Mauritania. Both of those had four big engines and four funnels. Great power, great speed. Titanic and her other Olympic-class sisters had only three engines, so they had less power and less speed. And to distract people, a fourth fake funnel was added to each ship. They only needed one funnel for each engine. But all three had a fourth funnel so that they weren't beaten into second place visually by the Cunard ships. And aboard Titanic, believe it or believe it not, the empty fourth funnel was used for storing luggage. <laughs> the point of all that was a large part of what was going on was show. Cunard and the White Star Line were in serious competition with one another because obviously the fastest ships would attract more passengers. It was all about showing off as far as possible. And that begins to give you a bit of a clue about what happened to Titanic because there was sort of hubris involved, overconfidence. 
other considerations were being set aside. Rather than making safety the number one, there were other things in play. And above all else, Titanic had to be seen to be the best. She was the biggest, and she had to be seen to be the best. So you might say that in amongst all that sleight of hand, maybe some corners were cut. Because the priority was not necessarily safety. The priority was demonstrating that she was the the biggest and the best and the fastest at all costs. So to get the job done, the Harland and Wolf shipyard, they built two slipways side by side. A slipway is a kind of a, it's like a wedge, it's like an angled concrete structure that the ship is raised up on. And so the slipways that were built for Olympic and Titanic were the largest in the world at the time. They were built on what was then Queen's Island in Belfast Harbour. Uh, it's subsequently, you know, development has meant that Queen's Island is now connected. So it's joined on to the rest of, it's not an island anymore, but it was an island. Olympic's keel was laid down first. That's the, the sort of backbone, the spine of the ship. That gets laid down first in December 1908. And she launched in 1910. Work on Titanic began on the 31st of March 1909. And two years and two months later, courtesy of the efforts of a thousand men, working like ants, utterly dwarfed by the thing they were building, Titanic came down the slipway. The slipway was made slippery with a thick slick of soap and tallow so that she would move. Hard to get these things to move because their their mass, their inertia is considerable. Uh, So it's difficult to get them moving sometimes. But off she went, down the slipway and into the river lagging. And she hit the water and she was longer than Olympic by just a foot. So although she was the largest man-made object that had ever moved on the face of the earth at the time, only by 12 inches. <laughs> you know, there wasn't, much, there wasn't much in it. When I was there, when I went to Harland and Wolf, a multi-million pound development had opened. Because where the Titanic and Olympic and Britannic were built, it was kind of derelict. Millions of pounds were spent developing the whole area to commemorate. It was done in time for the 100th anniversary of the loss of Titanic. We call it Titanic Quarter now. And there's like film studios and there's private apartments where people live. There's businesses and all sorts. There's a visitor centre, of course, telling the story. I mean, surely, is there a more famous ship than Titanic? Is there a grander and more terrible story of lives lost at sea? And the visitor centre, if you look at it, you can see that it's been designed to suggest the superstructure of ships. It's a very modern building. But the funny thing is, it's all glass. And so it shines and it glistens in the sunlight. And from time to time, it also looks a little bit like an iceberg. (laughs) Which is possibly a little bit unfortunate. But you can go, when I was there, I, I was showing the slipways. These, these concrete wedges that the ships were built on. And I have to say, I was kind of st- struck by thinking that they were small. They, they weren't as big as I expected them to be. And nearby in the Titanic quarter, there's the outline of Titanic has been picked out in white stone. You know, it's laid out, you know, drawing the shape, leaving the footprint. And again, what you get is how narrow she was at her widest point. You know, I said before she was about you know less than a hundred feet wide, but because of the available power of the engines of the day, 
a ship had to be slim, really sort of taking its inspiration from a fish. You know, if you imagine how long a fish is, they tend to be quite narrow to give them a chance. So the engines needed its width to be no more than a tenth of its length. So hence, nearly 100 feet wide, because it was nearly 1,000 feet long. Otherwise, the engines just wouldn't have been able to get her moving through the water. But you're struck by how narrow she is. It's really quite amazing. But then you stand, you can stand in this shape, and you're... I remember being appalled by the thought that 2,200 people, passengers and crew, had fitted into that space. 2,200 people's a lot. And that's how many people were aboard when she began her, her tragic maiden voyage. She set off in the April of 1912. She, she departed from Southampton. She was built in Belfast, but she steamed across to Southampton, took on some passengers. She crossed the channel then to Cherbourg, where she picked up more people. And then she came to Cove in County Cork, and she collected the last of the passengers before heading out into the Atlantic. 2,200 people went aboard or were, were aboard in total passengers and crew. Well, 1,500 were lost. The scale of loss is really quite something. And when you have that in your head, standing inside the outline in white stone, I was also struck by how it reminded me or it made me think of those chalk outlines that you see at crime scenes drawn around after the body's been taken away. It had that air about it. Harland and Wolf's Yard is, is it's an absolutely iconic place. You see it from all over Belfast, largely because there's these two gigantic cranes used in the construction process. They're called Samson and Goliath. They're actually two slightly different heights. They're painted yellow now. And I don't know, sometimes when you're thinking about Titanic, they suggest maybe gallows. You know, you can't help but have these fateful images in your head whenever you think about Titanic. Everyone knows what happened, you know, she was she was steaming across the Atlantic. There was a priority given to speed. They were trying to set a record or, or get across the Atlantic in the fastest possible time because the maiden voyage would be a great advertising tool for further passengers. So, you know, she was making heavy headway and she struck an iceberg. We all know, everyone knows this, you know, everyone knows the story of Titanic. But as I said, it... It's something for me about a door opening in time and on the other side of that door was the First World War. Titanic, in 1912, she contained in microcosm the world of before, the world of the past. It was all still there aboard Titanic. And that world of 1912, of course, was untouched by the horror of the 20th century. There would be the First World War, and then there would be 21 years of a gap, and then there would be the Second World War, and all of that horror. And then on into the Cold War, on into whatever was happening behind the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union, the gulags, the 100 million dead at the hands of communism. It was all still to come, and innocently almost... Titanic represented all that had been before. That belief that we were in control. But it was also a time, Titanic also stands for a time when machines were just about to cross that line into becoming so big, so powerful. Mm -hmm. 
you know, we're now in a situation where it becomes a question of who's in control now? Is it us or is it the machines? And that was starting to happen, I think, in 1912 with Titanic. When you look back on her now, she's almost like a warning. Technology was moving fast. All sorts of machines were being developed. At that time, Daimler-Benz were making great strides with automobiles. The Wright brothers and Louis Blériot, the Wright brothers, they were the, the two American brothers who managed the first uh, manned flight of a powered aircraft. Louis Blériot was the Frenchman who flew across the English Channel. It was all starting to happen. Ships, though, were still the dominant force and the unsinkable. Titanic was supposed to be unsinkable. It was almost like a, a soubriquet or a nickname, the unsinkable Titanic. She was supposed to be the brightest and the best. Also at that time, Dreadnought was a new word. Dreadnoughts was the name of the first of a new mark of British battleships. And there was a great kind of public excitement around them. It was generally believed amongst the British public, erroneously, really, but it was generally believed that Germany was building ships hand over fist in a deliberate attempt to compete with the British Royal Navy. And the British Royal Navy had always stood supreme above all else. It's debatable, actually, the extent to which Germany was or was even capable of competing. But nonetheless, the press, the media in Britain whipped up an atmosphere where they thought that Germany was in an arms race with the British Empire. And so when it came to the dreadnoughts, there was a call of we want eight and we won't wait. You know, they wanted a fleet of eight of these new dreadnoughts. So it's like the rise of the machines. The machines were crossing a line at that point. And of course, in the wider picture of Europe, the nations by 1912 and certainly by 1914, they were all bound together by webs of alliances and treaties and ententes. You know, they were tied together. They had promised that if this happens, we'll do this. If they attack you, we'll attack them. An intricate web all across Europe. And it feels, looking back on it now, that people just didn't see what was coming. It was almost like a trap. They had set a trap for themselves. And the trap was about to spring shut in 1914. And to some extent, when the teeth of the trap shut in 1914... They never really opened again. The world was profoundly altered by the First World War and by the rest that unfolded in the 20th century. But there we have Titanic. You imagine her out there, in the dark, steaming through the night, unknowingly, towards disaster. But she was like a model of the carefully crafted and scripted British world I often think about and I've spoken quite recently actually about another ship another British ship HMS Birkenhead well 60 years before Titanic's disaster Birkenhead left Britain bound for South Africa uh, she was taking troops a lot of them from Ireland as well to fight in the African wars there were about maybe in excess of 600 men aboard Birkenhead and as was not unusual at the time some of the officers had brought their women and children with them their wives their, their kids that was fairly standard practice and Birkenhead struck a reef of rock not far from her destination and she began to sink in shark infested water 
and the senior soldier aboard, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Seaton, a six foot three inch Scotsman, you know, I always picture Sean Connery in the role, he realised right away that they weren't all going to get into lifeboats. There weren't enough. And those that were there, most of them were unusable because the, their chains had rusted into position or been painted into position. And so he said, he didn't use the words women and children first, but he ordered that the women and, and the children would be taking the available lifeboat spaces. This was revolutionary at the time. Before that, when a ship struck trouble, it was just every man for himself would have been the cry. You know, save yourself if you can. Do your best. Well, aboard Birkenhead, everything was changed by that commander, by his officers and by the men who stood, who stood and let the women and children get into the boats, understanding the situation. And then even when the ship sank and they were in the shark-infested water and the sharks were taking them, there was no attempt made to get to the cutters and the gig with the women and children in it because they would have been swamped and everyone would have died. 430 men died aboard Birkenhead, but every single woman and child was saved. And that protocol of women and children first is more properly described as the Birkenhead drill. Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem about it 50 years later. To stand and be still to the Birkenhead drill is a damn tough bullet to chew. It set a standard. The loss of Birkenhead and the way in which the men had behaved in order to preserve the lives of the women and children was never forgotten. In Prussia, the story, or a version of the story, was put up in every barracks of every regiment and the men were told to read the story and to understand that that was the standard that was expected of them. And so, 60 years later, aboard Titanic in 1912, as she began to tip, as she began to go, because of Birkenhead, men knew what was expected of them. In theory. And that, that's the point. They knew what they should aspire to be and what British society expected them to do. There was this expectation that they would stand straight-backed and let the women and children go. Captain Edward Smith, the captain of the Titanic, was heard constantly saying to his officers, be British, boys, be British. Because of Birkenhead, because of a long history of sacrifice, British men knew what was expected of them. Whether they could deliver what was expected of them was a matter for each individual, but they knew what was expected of them. Some of them did. You know, some of them rose to the challenge. Others were crumpled by the pressure. J. Bruce Ismay, who was the chairman of the White Star Line, he was aboard the maiden voyage, and he slunk away and got into a boat with some of the women, even while there were women left behind. And most of the lifeboats, few and inadequate though they were, most were unfilled when they were rowed away. So they rowed away from the ship with spaces that were not taken. And as she went down, the ship's officers were very concerned that panic would break out amongst the third-class passengers, of whom there were many. The ship was stratified, like British society. First class was at the top, on the deck, and then there was a middle class in the middle deck, and then lowest down, right down where the engines were, right down towards the keel was third class. And the officers already knew that there weren't spaces in lifeboats. People were not getting into the lifeboats, and they knew that if the sheer volume of people, or they feared that if the sheer volume of people coming up from third class got out of control, there would just be carnage and chaos. And 
it was mirrored in society because all across Europe and certainly in Britain, society was worried about the rising of the lower classes. What happened aboard Titanic was almost a metaphor. You know, revolution was in the air. The Russian Revolution would happen in in 1917, but there was pressure coming from below, if you like, from the working class, from the third class people. So what was happening aboard Titanic and where measures were taken to keep the third class under control? Well, all across Europe, there was simmering discontent and governments and rulers were worried about how they would continue to be able to control the sheer mass of the people. It was all playing out there. What did they do to the third-class passengers? Entrance up onto the deck was barred. It's unclear the extent to which it happened. There's a famous scene, obviously, in the in the film with Leonardo DiCaprio where the, there's metal gates across the steps coming up from below that are barred and one of the officers fires a gun. There's a lot of dispute about what actually happened. But however it was handled, the point was there were too many people for the lifeboats and the officers knew it that if everybody was suddenly on deck there would just be chaos and panic and it's that that's worth remembering because it was mirrored in society more widely the ruling classes were worried about how they could continue to control the mob if you like it was all playing out aboard Titanic and then there was the behaviour of the band you know famously there was a band aboard you know who'd been playing music They weren't passenger or crew, they were self-employed contractors and and really they weren't under anybody's command. And it was up to them what they did when the disaster struck. But to a man, they chose to stay behind and chose to keep playing. The leader was a man called Wallace Hartley. He was from non-conformist stock in Lancashire and he led them to the end. And legend has it that they were playing nearer my God to thee as the water rose about them. All of it that was happening aboard Titanic was a terrible portent of what was lying just ahead, just over the horizon, just out of sight, so that the First World War is like the iceberg that we would tear ourselves apart upon, that we would run onto on account of overconfidence and on account of not properly understanding the future that we had put in place for ourselves. And so, just as Titanic was steaming towards the iceberg, Europe was plunging headlong towards the carnage of the First World War. And there was a disproportionate number of men of the middle classes aboard Titanic died. Disproportionate in terms of the total numbers involved. And it was because so many of the middling class men didn't get into lifeboats and did stay behind and bore in mind the notion of the Birkenhead drill, that it was right and proper that the women take priority. That behaviour was disproportionately represented amongst that middling class of men. And likewise, during the First World War, it was that middling class of men, British men, that was disproportionately harvested. A million people from Britain and the Empire died in the First World War. You know, the death toll was staggering. But in terms of the available proportions, the the middling class men took a a, a disproportionate hit. You know, the characters like Wilfred Owen, well, something similar happened aboard the Titanic, such that I've always felt two years before the First World War, aboard Titanic, 
there was a glimpse of a world that was coming to an end. A stratified world, a world in which people had been taught to know their place, upper class at the top, then a middling class, and then the lower orders. That's how they were distributed aboard Titanic. And when it all started to go wrong after Titanic hit the ice, people began to perform in the main as they had been taught by generations of culture and history and heritage. But that was a world that was coming to an end. And the British Isles, this British archipelago, to which this is a love letter, that Britain that the passengers aboard Titanic thought they knew and thought they understood was about to be changed forever. An island washed in heaven's tears, ancient jagged crags and rare beauty, houses painted in soft pastel shades, and the inn where Bonnie Prince Charlie said goodbye to Flora MacDonald before fleeing with his tail between his legs. A snapshot of the pain suffered by a small town on the Isle of Skye brings the horror of the First World War into sharp relief. Billions of spent bullets, millions dead, a magnitude of sorrow and suffering it's impossible to comprehend. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.